who just rejected Jesus. Uh, so our scripture this morning is found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. And Pam, as everybody else is looking to for, towards their scripture, uh, do you want to say anything? Chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. There is a small group of us that meet on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock to pray. Um, pray for the service, pray for each other, pray for the church, pray for direction. And I shared with them that this is really, in many respects, a really hard message for me to, to wrestle with um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's, it's because in these verses, he's saying there's going to be people who aren't bad people. They're indifferent. And because they're indifferent, their punishment is going to be worse than the punishment that I put on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's not because of these huge moral issues. It's just because there were good people who just never responded to, to God. And I think that that is pretty much what happens in churches and in our society as a whole. There's a lot of really, really good people but they've never really acknowledged or responded to Christ. And so they've just become indifferent and have never repented, have never acknowledged, and have never said, no, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Last week, we ended the message with Jesus comparing the people of his day to children who can't be satisfied by anything. And you know people like that. Um, there are times I am that person. It doesn't matter what's going on. I'm just not happy. And, and that's exactly what was going on in Jesus' day. And Jesus wasn't the first person that the Pharisees didn't accept. You had John the Baptist, and they didn't accept him. And then Jesus came along, and they didn't accept him. And for completely different reasons. The Pharisees, the, uh, John the Baptist, they considered a lunatic. And Jesus, they considered a glutton. One was out there in the wilderness just sort of raving about repentance and, you know, walking around in a loincloth and eating, you know, locusts and wild and, and honey. And then the other one is going to parties with prostitutes and going to weddings and changing water into wine. And so they're going, and they're not happy with either one. Um, one is preaching repentance and the other one is preaching grace. Not happy with either one. Um, and so the people of John and Jesus' this time rejected God by rejecting his messages, messengers. Neither approach pleased them because neither man fit 
into their mold. <clears throat> now think about that and ask yourself, how many times do we often want G the Jesus we want? Um, and not only do we want the Jesus we want, we, we want him when we want him. And the people in Jesus' time were the same. The other day, Gwen and I were driving around and got a phone call from a lady who's currently living in Florida and just asking those questions. Why did God not do what I wanted him to do? You know, we want Jesus the way we want him when we want him instead of saying, Jesus, I am yours at all times for every situation. So, the time has come. Jesus has labored among the people. He's been there for a long time. And for the most part, the majority of the people were unaffected by his presence, his power, and his persuasion. So Jesus declares a very sad judgment upon the people. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, there really is no record in the Gospels of the work that Jesus did and the wonders he performed in these places. And yet, the scripture says, but these were some of his greatest, um, or his mighty works were done. And so they saw all these mighty works and refused to repent. Refused to repent. And the cities of Tyre and Sidon were powerful cities, but they were moral sewers. And, you know, pagan religion was rampant. Uh, Jezebel came from Sidon. God raised up Elijah uh, to battle the abominations that she brought forth. But Jesus said, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for those two cities on the day of judgment than for you. On the day for you. So God measures sin not just by the light that he gives. So, it, so God is sitting there going, I've given you all of this. And instead of you seeing it, instead of you responding to it, instead of your heart being broken by it, instead of all those things, you just go on every day as if nothing has happened. So while the Son of God preached and taught and performed unprecedented miracles in their midst. They carried on their business and their lives as usual, seemingly unaffected. From a human perspective, their indifference would appear foolish. But it really doesn't appear all that horrible. And that's really how we look at people today. Well, you know, they're good people. You know, that's the whole idea of universalism. Oh, they're good people. They haven't really done anything wrong. Surely God would provide them an opportunity. 
instead of saying, wait a second, God did provide them an opportunity, and the fact that they have rejected the God who came to save them, that is the biggest issue. Not that they may have cheated on their income tax. Not that they may have even entered into porn site. Not that they've even done all these other things. The fact that first and foremost they were indifferent to the things that Jesus was saying to them, that was the issue. Um, according to John MacArthur, indifference is a heinous form of unbelief. It so completely disregards God that he is not even an issue worth arguing about. He is not taken seriously enough to criticize. So basically what he's saying, the thing that brings down the severest rebuke is not sinful behavior of people living in darkness, but the indifference of people who are living in the light. There's one that you've been given this light and you have not even responded to it. Um, and it's not difficult to incur that kind of condemnation. It's as simple as just do nothing. Do nothing. When Jesus says, repent and be baptized, do nothing. When Jesus says, trust in me, do nothing. When Jesus says, I am the only way, the light, the truth, salvation, do nothing. And it's so easy in the American church to do nothing. And when we do nothing, that's the biggest sin of indifference. Um, so in, in God's sight, to have lived in the light of privilege, given to Capernaum, and then have denied that light was a sin worse than Sodom's. So judgment against the moral abominations of Sodom will be exceeded by judgment against the spiritual indifference of Capernaum. So Jesus' teachings may have mildly interested them, and his miracles entertained them, but nothing more. His grace never ripped at their hearts. His truth never changed their minds. They continued to hold on to their own thought patterns. His warnings about sin never provoked repentance. They said, wait, I need to change. I need to repent. I need to turn from this behavior and follow Christ. And his offers of salvation was left unresponded to. Here it is. Okay, I will do nothing. Um, they did not recognize that the miracle showed he was a messenger from God who commanded them to repent. But Jesus asserted that if he had done the same miracles in Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum, they, or uh, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Um, see, we think of sin as behavior. And sin can deal with, God can deal with sin. That is what the cross is all about. But it's that stiff-necked, hard-hearted, unrepentant, religious, pious feeling that we have that I don't have to do anything that are the people who are lost without hope. When we call sin not sin, we burn the bridge back to God. Because we can't repent of something we don't think is wrong. And we don't think indifference is wrong. 
we think, I don't have to do anything. It's no big deal. Um, and the worst sin toward our fellow humans is not to hate them, but to be indifferent towards them. To just be indifferent towards them. Because even like at Hesed House, love will find a way. Indifference will find an excuse. If I'm there to love somebody, I'll, I'll find a way to do that. But indifference will say, somebody else can do it. Somebody else is available. They don't really need me. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not good enough. So Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you. Uh, and the, and in R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, he says that the word woe just means a sorrowful pity. So it's not that Jesus is just coming down with this anger. It's a sorrowful pity that says, folks, I've done everything I possibly could do to show you that I love you, that I'm here for you, that I can provide salvation for you, that I can pave the way for you, and yet you reject it. And there's just a sorrowful pity that goes along with that. Um, Jesus came to them preaching and teaching and performing miracles and stayed in their midst for a significant amount of time, and yet they were unaffected. And just try to think if you were living in Capernaum. Just down the street from you is Jesus. And every day you could go and talk to him, and every day you could see him do miracles, and every day you could hear from him, and every day you could do that. And then you say, oh, that was nice. Now I think I'll go home and just do nothing. And do nothing. See, the same is true for us today. Uh, these cities had more privileges than any other cities in the history of humanity. We, in Aurora, we in the United States, have more privileges than any other country ever has had. And it's because of God that be people don't recognize it's because of God and we go forth and do nothing. Because of this, we're told that the cities will occur a greater judgment than even Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, there's a principle taught in Scripture that tells us that with great knowledge comes great responsibility. The more knowledge you are given concerning God, the more is required of you. To turn away from his knowledge and to disregard it is to earn a greater judgment. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom will be judged. But Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum will be judged much more because they had much more of Jesus to reject. Um, then it first started in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. <clears throat> yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Um, those who acknowledge their utter helplessness in themselves, to whom God sovereignly chooses to reveal the truths of his kingdom, it is the poor in spirit who humbly confess and acknowledge their dependency 
that God makes the way of salvation clear. I will talk to people on a daily basis who are going through unbelievable issues, unbelievable problems. They will say that you know, things are just hopeless, but instead of just surrendering it to God, they continue to try to solve it their own way. And he's saying, I've come for you, and why will you not let it go and trust me in the process? Because no amount of human reasoning or speculation can ever explain God's saving truth, God's way, God's direction, God's ability to intervene, God's willingness to intervene, but yet we will still hold on to doing it our way instead of saying, okay, God, I'm going to let go, and I'm going to let you do this. Um, these verses also are extremely clear when they say, there is only one who knows the Father. No one on earth knows the Father. Only Jesus Christ knows him. Because this is true, only Jesus can make him known to someone. And the way we get the awesome privilege to meet God, the Father, is to be introduced to him by Jesus the Son. And Jesus pleads with everyone to come. He pleads with everyone to come. So you have this section here where there's this tremendous judgment and this tremendous sense where it looks like, wow, there's only this certain group of people that are going to be elect. But then he goes right into verse 28, which is completely the answer to everyone's hopeless condition. And when you go through this, he says, okay, this is the hopeless condition you're in, whatever it may be. And then he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus puts forth this universal call that all people would come to him. However, as John Calvin put it, most people are intoxicated with their own righteousness, and so they never surrender. They never give it over to Jesus. It is difficult to think of an invitation that is more important or more gracious than this. Come to me, all, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is there any greater invitation to humanity than that invitation? And the way we get judged is by doing nothing. Nice invitation, but you know what? I'm busy this Saturday. I've got, you know, this that I have to do, and I, I think I might mow the lawn, you know, instead of coming to Jesus. The simplicity of Jesus' promise is also amazing because it's both striking and refreshing. Jesus doesn't offer a fourfold path to peace and enlightenment like Buddha did. And he doesn't give us five pillars of peace through submission to Islam. And he doesn't give us ten ways to relieve your weariness 
which we pragmatic, self-help uh, self oriented people in the United States would come up with. He says it's real simple. Come to me. Just come to me. It's not 10 steps. It's not five steps. It's not four steps. It's not self-help. It's just, you know what? I'm just going to go to Jesus. Um, and that's unique to anyone else in human history. Nobody has ever said that. Um, Cast your anxieties on me, for I care for you. Trust in me with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, and you will find rest for your souls. I don't know of anything that needs rest more than our souls. And when I look, take a look at what's going on in our society, I don't know of any people that need more rest than what's going on in our world today. And if we focus on the world, and we focus on the news, and we focus on all those things, and let that be our focus, we'll never get out of our depression. But when we say, but rest in me, find your hope in me. I've shared this before. Um, when I worked at Mercy Center on the psych ward, what I noticed there, which was the most glaring thing for me, is you'd walk up there and for eight hours there was no laughter. There was no laughter. And I realized that the absence of laughter is the absence of hope. And I see a society of people where anger has replaced laughter. And on the news, anger. On talk shows, anger. Between people at work, anger. Between friends, anger. That we have become so isolated from anyone that's different than us and anyone that may challenge us and we just are moved into an area of self-protection. I had an illustration. I want to share one illustration. I think, it's, I think it's an amazing illustration. I heard it this uh, Thursday. Um, and I forget who I heard it from. But the lady mentioned that when a person has a, heart, a transplant, that immediately they're put on over 20 anti-rejection drugs. Joe Pettit's going to be leading worship here uh, next Sunday. And for those of you who don't know who Joe Pettit is, Joe Pettit had a heart transplant about four years ago, four or five years ago. And he and his wife ran Rivers, or his wife ran Rivers Edge Cafe, and Amy Pettit used to work for us. Um, but he had a heart transplant. But immediately he had to have 20 drugs injected in his body to prevent his body from rejecting that heart. Think about that. And play it out in regards to the church. Play it out in regards to your own life. Play it out in regards to the places you work. Okay? Here's a body that needs a heart. The body knows that it needs the heart. But yet, as soon as the heart is introduced into the body, that same body will reject that heart. The body will reject exactly what it needs, knowing that it needs it. 
Why does it reject it? Because it's not like us. All the other body parts are saying, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is new. And we don't like new. So let's get rid of it. We do that in almost every area of our lives. We fight change because it's new. We fight things that we don't understand because it's new. We don't connect with people who are different than us because it's new. And so there's a sense that we will always continue to isolate ourselves and find things that are comfortable and sin, instead of saying, God, change me. Because I think we do the exact same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I have come in and I will transform you. I will change you. I will make you a new person. And we say, all sounds good. But, you know, I need some anti-rejection drugs before I accept this Holy Spirit. Because we will, also, we will say that, yeah, that's exactly what I need. And then go home and do nothing. And we will become indifferent. And I just, that hit me so much to, to this week when they gave that illustration. Because I always knew about the anti-rejection drug, but it was never brought home to me as far as how much that body needs that organ, but yet the body will reject that which it needs because it's different. It's different. Um, if we're going to grow in our own life, it's because we embrace what the Holy Spirit is going to do in our lives. And we could no longer be indifferent. Take my yoke and learn from me. In Jesus' day, the term taking the yoke meant coming under the leadership of another person and following in his or her footsteps. When Jesus tells us to take his yoke, he is inviting us to submit to his authority. If we submit to his authority, he will give us rest, sharing our burdens. When I'm at the most anxious in my life, it's because I realize that I have taken back the, the thing that I had surrendered to Jesus. It helps us to let go of the grip on our lives and letting him be in control. Taking Jesus' yoke will radically change your thoughts. It'll radically change your feelings which eventually will radically change your behavior. So what's the body going to do? Naturally try to reject it. The old man is going to do whatever it can to reject the new. And we just have to recognize that. That's the battle that's going on. So the new man says, no, I know I need this change. I know I need it. And I want Christ, but you know what? I sort of like this addiction I have too. And so, we will fight it. And it's just letting go and letting Christ be the center. Jesus promises to give us rest when we find rest in him. He is our burden bearer. And when we turn the circumstances of our lives over to him, he lifts us up and fuses us with his spirit and our hearts with a fresh hope and wisdom to live life. And folks, the other thing, he tells us never to do this alone. This is a community event. 
growing in grace, growing in Christ, growing in relationship, growing in fellowship, that's the purpose of the church. To refocus, reorient ourselves, to worship him, and to be strengthened to be able to handle the events of the weeks that are coming before us and to hold on to one another. I know a lot of people say, you know, I can handle this on my own. Just be careful that you're not just being indifferent and doing nothing when Jesus says, do something. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I think that you have told us not to neglect to meet together, but to keep on encouraging one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to do it as long as it is called today, that we may never be hardened by our own deceitfulnesses, our own indifferences, but that we fully, too, fully can understand what it means to allow our lives to be open to your transforming power. And that we're never guilty of the sin of indifference. But that we are always hungering after you and hungering what it means to love others. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask for your continued guidance upon each of us. That we can go forth to be a blessing one to another is our prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said,